Hello and welcome to Janet Jam and Lewis Deconstructing Nine Months of Making. I'm John Cameron and firstly I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened uh, to Janet Jam and Lewis Deconstructing 30 Years of Music. It's, uh, it's nice having people you admire like uh, Maxwell or, or Questlove tweet about something you've made but it was really those who... When I would wake up in the morning, I would have notifications on my phone because one of you guys posted on a forum about the documentary or posted on Twitter about it, and uh, it's uh, it really brightens up your day. <laughs> so thank you to, to everyone who got involved in that. It was... Um, I, I just... I have no words for, for my appreciation, um, which is why I've decided to throw this together. This is going to be a kind of behind-the-scenes of how everything was put together. Um, I'm recording this in between other projects at the moment, so this is very unscripted on my part, but I think a lot of you will find it, will find it interesting, especially those of you who have been sending me messages asking for, you know, where's that extra 40 minutes of material that we've heard. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that soon. Um, just to give a bit of a background on how everything started, the idea first developed, I would say, roughly five years ago when I got access to a lot of uh, session material uh, of Janet's. And I just thought, wow, this is... Why has no one done anything with this? You know, um, why, why is there no special editions out of her albums? Why is there... Because the content is, is clearly in, the, in whatever archive it's in. Um, I mean, if I can get access to it, surely someone at uh, a record label can. But, uh, yeah, so it was a fleeting thought that I would do something with it. And I take a long time to really get anything done, as we will discover throughout uh, throughout the duration of this program, I, I just kind of let it sit in the back of my mind. And it wasn't really until August last year, being uh, 2016, that I started playing around with the multitracks again. And I'll play you a little something that I put together back then, and it kind of set off a spark in me. So this wasn't done for any particular reason. This was just me having a bit of fun. From what I recall, the idea in my mind was to give this song a decent radio edit, but also I kind of interspersed bits and pieces of how the live version, the recent live version of this track was performed. So um, this is kind of what sparked it off for me. I hope you find it interesting.
So yes, that is uh, the classic Pleasure Principle, which of course the documentary opens with. It was just, like I said, it was just a bit of an experiment, but it gave me the idea that I should really document what's in these sessions somehow. And I had an idea for Rhythm Nation, because 2019 is obviously the 30th anniversary of that album, And I thought, well, it's quite a while away, but maybe I'll just start writing some stuff. So eventually I started compiling these articles called, I think the working title was Untold Rhythms. And I actually used the basic idea of one of these for an article that was posted on thevioletreality.com as kind of a promotional bit for the the airing of uh, the documentary. But for those articles, I interviewed Lee Blask, who is a uh, strings composer, arranger, you know, did the stuff on Come Back to Me, obviously, Um, did some great work on uh, St. Paul Peterson's debut album as well. You know, a real... um, uh, Minneapolis has a lot of local legends, and you'll find them in in album credits if you look hard enough, but uh, Lee Blask is certainly one of those. 
And I also interviewed Dr. O'Nicholas Raths, who did guitar work from, I think the, the first production he did for Jam and Lewis was, or rather for Janet Jam and Lewis was, uh, Let's Wait a While. And I think the last may have been Every Time on the Velvet Rope, but I could be wrong about that. So I started compiling these articles and I thought, you know, I really hate it when I read stuff about, you know, demos of artists or songs that I like. So in my mind, I thought, why don't I just put a documentary together? So late that year, I uh, found out about Sin Media, which is, it's a community radio station. And really, it it wasn't so much that I wanted to be on radio or anything. Um, I do have a background in in stand-up comedy and performing, but radio never quite appealed to me. But they were willing to provide the facilities required for me to get this done, predominantly recording studios. Uh, and we'll go into that a bit more later on. So I uh, I started putting together the scripts for the documentary. They were actually divided into two. One was called, uh, ooh, what was it called? Uh, the Story, which was just the general narrative, and the other one was called uh, The Breakdowns, which, as we now describe them as deconstructions. So going through the multi-tracks and me noting what was particularly significant about it that I would mention. That process took, oh boy, (laughs) uh, too long. Uh, Originally I had, I I set myself deadlines to, to get the entire thing done. Originally it was April. Well, that was, uh, shifted quite progressively to uh, September, because I've got a life to lead, as, as we all do. This wasn't something that I was paid for. This was an artistic engagement um, on my part. So about August, I think, the script was finally complete. But everything else, I, I didn't want to go into the studio until I had my scripts finalised, because knowing me, I would change my mind and probably I would throw out the script and then I'd spent so much time recording that it was it, it was just not an economical way of doing things. So the writing took about six months. Uh, I think the first sessions for my narration was in July and I had an awful, awful flu and it just did not sound very good. So I recorded the entire documentary and more uh, and had to throw that out anyway. Then the second set of sessions, I had the worst toothache, where at one point I actually had to be rushed to the uh, emergency room because I was in so much pain. So I got about halfway with that. Then the third set of sessions, which I think would have been uh, mid-August, I recorded the whole thing. I thought I did a, a, a great job. I had the every little affectation in my voice that I wanted, but... I made a very rookie mistake in that I had my phone on me and I was getting notifications for whatever reason. So throughout the whole recording, there was just buzzing noises. So I didn't really want to go through and filter all of that stuff out. So I arranged to do my final narration sessions and I got it right I would say that it's difficult for me to listen to the documentary 
just because there isn't that much enthusiasm in my voice, as I'm, I'm sure some of you have noticed. Uh, and that's that's why, because I'd already recorded it so many times, and you can imagine I read through the script a multitude of times, editing, correcting, further researching, and it's not that I was sick of the project at this point, I was excited to finally get it out there. It was, all, it was going to be almost uh, relieving for me by this point. So uh, through the sessions and sound issues, I start to put together what I described as the work print for the documentary. Work print is actually more a term associated with movies and television. Uh, so it's like a, a rough edit, but this for me was two hours and ten minutes of, well, pretty much everything that I had written, recorded, and compiled. Uh, there, were, there was some stuff that, uh, even as I was putting the work print together, I went, uh this is just going to go nowhere. So I, I don't know what the overall runtime for everything I did for this was, but uh, the work print ran for two hours, ten minutes. I made a casual mention of this on uh, probably a forum or two or on Facebook. And since then, I've had a lot of messages of people who want to hear the stuff that was cut out. So let's get into it. Okay, so the first segment is in the pre-control part. I'll leave little bits in that were included in the documentary uh, just so you kind of know where they fall into. So this segment was cut out because I wanted to talk about the importance of prints, but it kind of got to a point where, I mean, not only was I trying to edit this thing down to 90 minutes, but it's not a prints documentary. And I think what I left in was good enough to, to kind of put the point across that without Prince, there wouldn't have been the time, there wouldn't have been Jam and Lewis, and there probably wouldn't have been what the rest of the documentary was about. So this is a bit of an extension on what was included. Here we go. Let's have a listen. At this time, Minneapolis was giving birth to many amazing musicians that would go on to become legends of the studio stage and pop culture in general, but some were set to become more legendary than others. I met Prince in junior high school. I um, Actually, we were in a piano class together, and it wasn't really much of a piano class. It was kind of a way to get out of school for an hour. I thought I was a pretty good keyboard player at that point in time, but I remember Prince could just play rings around me. Like, like it was a whole nother thing that he had, and I thought I was good, and he could just do stuff, and I just was like, man, this dude's nuts. I remember that year they put together a band for a uh, like a school like a play or a musical or something and they said who wants to be in the band and I said I'll be in the band and they said okay what are you going to play and I said I'll play drums Prince what are you going to play I thought he was going to say keyboards he said guitar I'll play guitar and I'm going I didn't know a dude played guitar oh that's cool so we're practicing we're doing our thing it's all cool so then we take a break so Prince starts playing the guitar solo from this song called Make Me Smile by Chicago. And back in the day, that was like the quintessential guitar solo. Like if you were a guitar player, you needed to know that solo. And he note for note just ripped it off. Like killed it, right? And I'm like going, 
damn, that, wow, that's good. So I go to the bathroom. I hear somebody on the drums. I'm thinking it's the band teacher on the drums. I come out, it's Prince on the drums. Like, I don't even want to sit down behind the drums anymore. It's like, dude, you got it, man. <laughs> I mean, he was such a phenom. But he started doing uh, demo tapes and stuff. There was a studio called Moon Sound, and he would go to this studio, the 16-track studio, and do these tapes, and he'd do them all himself, every instrument. Go in and play the drums and play the keyboard and play the bass, and he'd do everything himself. So his whole thing was... I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to get up out of here. And we were all rooting for him because we were like, we knew how talented he was and we knew that if he got out, that that gave all of us a chance. It was always known that Prince was going to be a, a phenom because he's the only guy that ever could just take anyone's instrument and play it better than them. Yeah. And that was just kind of the standard issue. I'll play it like this. And you say, um, I, can, I can't play it like that. <laughs> We were just happy for him to get out because other people had gotten out of Minneapolis, but none that close, nothing that tangible. So what it did is it gave everybody hope. So at that point, everybody just committed to being better musicians. By 1981, Prince already had three albums that, while weren't as renowned compared to his later work, they were enough for the industry and fellow musicians to take note at what he was clearly building up to. This enabled Prince to have his own side projects, which others would often front. He did a song with Morris called Party Up. He told Morris that if he did the song with him, he could take the credit and get paid for it, or he'd do a band for him. Morris chose the band. So, like a month later, I get a call from Morris. Morris said, yeah, man, I'm going to start this thing. I want you to be the bass player. And he said, well, put together, keep together the band you got. And in that band at that time, we had Alexander O'Neill was our singer. Jelly Bean Johnson was our drummer. Monty Moyer was our keyboard player. And I was jabbing at Jimmy to get back in the group to get him to come and be the other keyboard player. Eventually that happened. And so we went on for the next month and they came back and we, they started to record. We had a meeting. <laughs> yeah. It's the infamous meeting with Alexander O'Neill, Prince, and, and, and the rest of us. And Alex couldn't see eye to eye with, with Prince about the paper. And so... Uh, <laughs> this whole band thing is cute and everything, Prince, but, yeah, you know, yeah, I, you know yeah. Alexander O'Neill need the paper. Yes, right. And so he threw down the stake, and we left there. So they went back out on tour. Morris called back, said that I'm going to be the front guy, so put Jellybean back in. Jellybean was already our drummer. And that's when it became the time. I must say, one of my favorite comments about the, the bits of that segment that I did include in the documentary was someone on uh, some random music forum uh, made note of the fact that I use the uh, Moon Sound demo version of Soft and Wet. So there's a bit of trivia that I'm, I'm, I'm glad someone picked up on. So this next segment was to follow the deconstruction of Nasty. And I got to a point in editing where I had to come to grips with the fact that I couldn't I mean I knew I couldn't include everything but I knew I couldn't include all of the songs that I felt were significant which is why we're pretty much left with 
just the stuff that I did the multi-track breakdowns of. This bit is just me kind of hammering down the importance of control and and one of the when I when I first became a fan of the album or rather when I when I first when I first listened to the album I didn't quite realize how much stuff was on there that I I knew you know just just from being alive you know so so this was kind of the general formula that I I followed the uh, deconstructions with but ultimately they had to be edited out I would say in addition to that I really wanted to keep the Herb Alpert bit at the end in. Just just again, for those who aren't overly familiar with Janet's discography, a lot of people I know are quite surprised to hear that that song is, is her. Anyway, this is the extended control segment. Control went on to have six top 20 singles, including Janet's first Billboard number one, When I Think of You. Played guitar on that record, and I don't really play guitar. So I always used to tease my friends that are really good guitar players that I got, I'm playing on the number one record guitar. How many number ones are you on? <laughs> so, um, you know, it just makes you fearless. Like, there was no genre or style that we wouldn't try. With this newfound independence in her work, Janet would also establish a theme that would become common on the albums that followed. I've heard that your mother was a bit surprised by your performance in Nasty. Now I'm wondering, what did she really have to say to you about well, this? Well, actually, it, it wasn't Nasty. She loves Nasty, and she loves the video. It was um, funny how time flies, because by me being the, the baby of the family, she really couldn't get into the moaning. Found, at the <laughs> <laughs> found you growing up. Yeah. I see. It, it was sort of difficult for her. <laughs> I see. children in that family. There are a lot of children now, all adults mostly, in your family. Is it ever a problem finding your own niche, your own thing? Yeah, it really is with so, so many of us and we're all in the same business, but I think I did it this time. I know you did it. This, this album is called Control. And I'd say our first little role that we went on was kind of through the Control album, and I remember we got the producer of the year, we won the Grammy for producer of the year. And I remember right after that, Clarence Avon ordered us to take a two-week vacation. We were like, vacation? What are we talking about, Clarence? We got all these acts lined up. We were producing records. 
He said, you take a vacation for two two weeks. You can't go to the studio. That's the stipulation. And we were like, oh, my God. What are you talking about? Okay, fine. Right, whatever. So remember the first couple of days, called Terry on the phone. What you doing, man? Nothing, man. <laughs> what you up to? What you up to, Jam? Uh, nothing. <laughs> you know. And we went through that for like the first week. Second week, we kind of settled into it a little bit. We're kind of like, what you up to, man? Nothing, man. That feels good to do nothing, man. Yeah, I agree, man. This does feel good. Yeah, this is cool. Called Clarence up. Clarence, can we take a third week off? <laughs> he said, absolutely. For Jam and Lewis, the hits would continue with artists like Sherelle, Alexandra O'Neill, and Herb Alpert, the latter of which would not only challenge them, but the record companies. As Herb had contributed to Janet's nasty single, she did the same for him, creating an instantly recognisable classic. We eased back into it, I would say, because Herb Alpert was making an album, and John McClain, who was at A&M, said, would you want to produce Herb Alpert? And we kind of thought, this is a great project to jump back into because there is no pressure, there's no expectation, except that we want to do good by Herb because Herb had looked out for us so much on the Janet Records and even giving us a chance to even record. So it was like, cool. And we ended up having a number one record with him and his first really number one record in 20 years. Mind you, all the representatives would always tell you you're crazy for wanting to do a Herb Alpert record. Why would you do a Herb Alpert in the middle of doing Janet Jackson? Like, because we can. Hi, Janet. How are you? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. I've been. I was listening to you all night last night. I didn't get any sleep. I was remixing uh, Diamonds. Are you kidding? No. So it came out great. One of the toughest things for me to edit out was what we're about to listen to. It's the deconstruction of Rhythm Nation, the song. One of my biggest regrets uh, about how the documentary ended up was not really emphasising on the politics of the Rhythm Nation album. And that's something I might revise in a, a future cut of it. But even with the material that I had, the the material that we're about to listen to, uh, I'm still not sure if it came across. Ultimately, the Rhythm Nation deconstruction got cut because I didn't feel that it was interesting enough. Or perhaps I didn't really have a lot to say about it. it. It just felt a bit out of place. Coming off of the success of Control, Janet was keen to make another profound declaration of what was going on inside her mind despite what the public may have expected. A lot of other people wanted me to do other, like a control too. I didn't want to do that. I felt that that's what the public would be expecting from me, and, and that's not something I wanted to do. I wanted to do something a little different, something that has concerned me for a very, very long time. And that's basically what's going on in the world today, and, and the kids mainly, because the children are our future. 
What would eventually become a primary theme of the next project was a concern brought forth not just by Janet. You couldn't turn on CNN without being blown away by the tragedy in the news. Something started, you know, burning uh, creatively with us as to what the album should be. Rhythm Nation 1814 was released in September of 1989. It continued the subject matter that concerned Marvin Gaye during the early 70s and was the framework for many of the socially conscious albums made today. Pushing politics through dance music was rarely done, even still at this time. The album and the film is about people united through dance and music, dealing with a lot of the social problems we have. I feel that there's one thing that we all have in common, and that's music. I know a song can't change the world, but if our music could inspire some of the people and make them want to join hands and, and begin to deal with a lot of the social problems we have, then, then hopefully we could make some sort of progress. And that's pretty much what it's all about. The title track is a modern compositional masterpiece. So much so that what we're about to listen to doesn't sound anything like the album version simply because it's so hard to mix. But let's attempt at breaking it down anyway. Five, four, three, two, one. dominated by the sample running through, it does have some pretty interesting drum patterns, mostly triggered by an MU Emacs drum machine and AMS samplers. Racism is everywhere, it's all around us, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an angry thing to have, and, and I feel that uh, we all suffer from it. I feel that the only way that we're going to get over all of these obstacles is, is through the children. I feel that the, the elders, they're already set in their ways. You can't teach them what they already feel deeply inside that they know is right even though they, they might be wrong. I feel we have to start with the children because the children are so innocent. They don't know the difference. There shouldn't be any difference, you know. 
you have veins and, and blood and, and just as I do. And there shouldn't be any difference. And I feel that it's the elders that teach the children these things. And I think we have to start with the children in order to break all the color lines, the, the literacy, the, the drugs, the everything. Like most of the, the, the dance music that's been out, it hasn't been anything like, like this, and that's why I wanted to do something different. And, and instead of the kids just going from party to party, jumping around, give them something to listen to, something to think about. struck me is the power behind the backing vocals, which seemed to be contributed mainly by whomever was around the studio, including the times Jelly Bean Johnson, Janet's future husband Renee Elizondo, and A&R guy John McClain. Also, some rather interesting unused vocals from Lisa Keith. Along with the socially conscious theme, the team continued to pump out the non-political dance hits as previous with Control. Okay, so Escapade. So the idea of Escapade was that we wanted a song, Janet wanted a song that you would hear like at a basketball game or a sporting event, like a really up-tempo record that everybody would want. So what we're about to hear is an an extended version of the uh, deconstruction for Come Back to Me. And there's a little. I, I won't ruin it because it's quite. It, it's quite a nice surprise when it when it comes up. But this was one of the most difficult things to to cut. And if you don't notice it, I'll come back at the end and, and point out what it was exactly. Uh, but also, there's a there's a bit at the end which talks about Terry's importance. One of the biggest challenges in making this was not to uh, make it. I wanted to stress the importance of all three of them, being Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. There's not a lot of Terry Lewis material out there that I could use. So the bit following uh, Come Back to Me, where it, where it goes into Terry's songwriting contributions, uh, that was quite difficult to cut out, but it was... 
it was a necessary edit to maintain what I felt to be a certain energy, especially following, you know, an unreleased version of Escapade and a stripped-down version of Come Back to Me. It was time to to surmise that era and, and move on. productions, Jam and Lewis already had most of the arrangement in their heads, but they still found it necessary to bring in other musicians when the synthesizers weren't quite articulating the sound they were looking for. Looking through my old drawer, came across the letter on acoustic guitar and Lee Blass conducting the strings, Come Back to Me becomes one of Janet's most sincere and emotional songs of the album and her career. Come back to me I'm begging you please Come back to me I want you to Come back to me I'm begging you When I spoke to Lee Blask, he told me that he originally heard a very basic version of the song with an even more basic idea of what they wanted for the string arrangements. It probably would have sounded a little something like this. Which of course turned into this.
Please come back to me. I miss you so much. Wherever you are. I love you. Janet added her vocals once the instrumental was done, and within just three main takes, what we hear on the album was comped. It's rather surprising to hear that Janet herself doubted her ability. I wish I could sing like Whitney. I guess that's why God didn't give me a wife. Because I'd probably be too hard to handle. I'm very long-winded, so it takes me a while to actually say something, and Terry can sum up what I say in three words, and I think that's part of his uh, gift. And so I remember when we were working on uh, Rhythm Nation with Janet, and we had this concept for a song uh, that was living in a world they didn't make. Like, that was the concept of the song. Because we were watching CNN, and there had been a school shooting, and all these kids had been getting killed, and we just thought... We got to talk about that on a record. We got to we got to address this. Janet kept saying, "We need Terry. We need Terry." And I said, "Yeah, we do." So Terry shows up at the studio at the old flight time where we're recording. We need lyrics, and he says, "Well, what's the concept?" And I said, "Okay, so these kids got killed at this school, and you know it's not their fault. You know it's the adults' fault. You know it's our mistakes, man. It's us messing up, right? The adults are messing it up for the kids, and it's like." You know, something, something, something. And I go into this hole, and me and Janet are telling him this whole thing. And Terry just goes, living in a world they didn't make. We're like, yeah. Terry goes, (laughs) 10 minutes later, has the lyrics, hands us the lyrics. There you go. And that was it. And that, to me, you know, that song is obviously as relevant today as it was, you know, 25 years ago when we did it, with what's going on in the world right now. So... That, to me, is the gift that he has for lyrics. In complete darkness, we are all the same. It is only our knowledge and wisdom that separates us. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Rhythm Nation would earn Janet countless accolades for the music, the dance, and the videos. It set a record for having seven top five singles from one album, while wrapped in a certain charming naivety which Janet later admitted to. Its political awareness raised the relevance for what needed to change in the oncoming generations.
So that was a bit of an insight into into editing. You'll probably notice if you were to compare it with the final cut that there was a a lot of splicing going on from uh, the original work print. If you didn't quite uh, pick up on the part of Come Back to Me that was cut out, it was the second verse which goes into the Spanish version. I, I just thought it was a nice little nugget in there. Time was, was scarce when I was making the final cut, so it, it just had to go. So onto the uh, Jenna album. Now, this is kind of going back to earlier with Control, where I just wanted to tack on a bunch of songs at the end to really emphasise, you know, it's just another great collection of material. But again, it was mainly time that this bit was cut out. And you'll notice at the beginning, we I, I'll fade it in from when uh, the, the end of the deconstruction of If... I had a bunch of ad-libs that I just wanted to play. And again, those were cut out because it messed with the the general feeling of, of uh, the way everything was flowing. But I, I must say those, uh, those if sessions are absolutely incredible. Hopefully at some point I'll have an opportunity to detail them a, a little more. Because I, I, as much great feedback as I got, particularly on that section... Uh, that was just scratching the surface. But also we're about to hear the battle between If and That's The Way Love Goes being uh, which will be the first single. And it was, a, it was a cute story and everything, but it wasn't really talking much about the music that couldn't have been said some other way, which it eventually was. So here is the extended Janet segment. so hot. I'm sorry, Jimmy. Oh, my jaws hurt. Things I do to you, but I'm not. Oh, that's very funny, Jimmy. Or from side to side, side to side, side, side. Some record executives had come up and heard If. It just happened to be the record we were working on the day they came. And in their minds, If was the single. So Janet went to L.A. for some meetings. And the last thing we said to her is, don't let them talk you into If. Because we all know that's the way Love Goes as a single. She comes back and she goes, If is the single. I said, what are you talking about? I said, no, no, no. She said, no, they think, you know, we can do a great video and it's dance and it sounds like me and blah, blah, blah. And we said, no, 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 that's whatever. So now fast forward about a month later, we're finishing the album. The last song we're doing is a song called New Agenda. We're doing it with Chuck D and Hank Shockley from Public Enemy. So we get done with the session about three in the morning. We're still, you know, we're still mad about the single not being that's the way love goes. So I said, Janet, can we play them the, the two songs we're thinking about for singles? Yeah. So we go in. So we play That's the Way Love Goes, and they're grooving. And then we play If. They're grooving. And we said, okay, what do you think? Well, that if, that if just sounds like Janet. You know, that just sounds like I can see the video and the dancing and the, man, that if is, that, that if is crazy, man. 
that if is crazy. So Janet's like looking at us like, and we're like going, damn. And then they go, but that other song, what's it called? That's the way love goes. That other song is like some Sade shit. It's like some shit where, you know how Sade, when she comes out with a record, there's no like big fanfare that she's coming out with a record. You know, it's just all of a sudden you look up and somebody goes, oh, what's this? Oh, Sade record. Oh, cool. Let's check this out. He said, that's that record. <laughs> Your love is king. Crown you with my heart. Your love is king. And Janet said, that's the way love goes. You're right. That's the way love goes. That's the single. And that's how it ended up being the first single. And we were absolutely right. If was eventually released following the debut of That's The Way Love Goes. Despite being polar opposites on most music genre scales, both enjoyed significant success, boosted not only by their high-quality craftsmanship in their productions, but also the videos that followed. That's The Way Love Goes in particular depicts a less reserved Janet in the company of her friends, whom were her dancers for the tour during that period. This more open social attitude would shape the overall feeling of the album, which continued to diversify and blend music categories. One of her dancers was in the studio and uh, when we were recording, and she's the one that does the, uh, here we go now, get busy, that's her singing, because uh-huh. she just had this tone. Here we go now, here we go now, here we go now, get busy. And we thought, wow, this is, this is perfect. But it really, the record really happened because all the dancers were around. And you could actually, as you were making the track, you could literally watch the dancers and the way they would move to something and know that you were on the right track with, you know, with what you were doing. As shown throughout the previous albums, one could interpret that Janet already had the seeds for what would be a topic explored on the next project. Let's talk about someone else you uh, collaborated on this project with, and that's an opera singer, Kathleen, Kathleen Battle. How did... You two get together. I met Kathleen in 87 at the Grammys when I performed at the Grammys in 87. And uh, my performance was Follow Hers. And I was on the side of the stage and she had on this yellow gown, this gorgeous gown, and she was belting out this final note. And oh my God. And the whole audience just stood up. And I started thinking, oh God, we have to follow that. <laughs> and uh, she, she came off the stage and I introduced myself and told her how much I enjoyed her performance. And, and she never left my mind. After all I've done for you. I knew that I wanted to work with her, wanted to do something different. And it's kind of like a rock opera, what we've done. But it has a funkiness to it. And uh, I called her up. I didn't have the song in mind. <laughs> and basically did the same thing that I did with Chuck. And... Um, she heard it and loved it. And her favorite line is, you running around with those nasty hoes. And she, there's this, there's this diva right. walking around the studio singing that line. And oh, it is so funny to me because she's so, oh, it's just amazing. And it's just basically all the rage and all the fury of, that, that a woman has that who, who's, who's uh, had enough, who's, who's had too, way too much, who's up to here.
couple of months after the release of the album, Janet would appear in the film Poetic Justice, her first major film role with Tupac Shakur. The movie shared a song with her album that became one of her best known. football in the studio and Jimmy will be sitting at the at the keyboards just playing different chords as a matter of fact that's how we wrote the song again yeah. that's how again came about and uh, he didn't really wasn't paying attention to what he was playing but I thought it was beautiful so we just build on top of that and again was born from that again would earn Janet an Oscar nomination something she'd always aspired for I just could not believe it it's just it's a dream come true it really is I've thought about this since I was a little girl my mother called me up and she was just so, she knew how badly I, I wanted the nomination and, and she just kept congratulating me. The Janet album is Jackson's highest selling worldwide. Its diversity from track to track displays how all three main producers on the album had evolved from their early control days. From smooth jazz to acid, from pop rock to Brazilian, from the ballads to the dance, it was clear there was no genre they couldn't adapt or weren't willing to. is doing so well. I mean, you know Rhythm Nation was like the bomb. Everybody was like, whoa, whoa. And you come right back at them with this one. This is like so fly. How do you feel about this one? I'm, I'm excited. I mean, 10 million copies. We've, we've, uh, Woo. Woo. It's, it's, I'm, I'm just happy. I really am. And I'm very thankful, right. you know, because you never know what the future holds. And I'm just thankful to have had three successful albums. Yeah. Consecutive. Back to back. When you first, like, remember when you was in the studio before what, any, with this, this album? album, right? Yeah. When we were using the studio, did you think at that time, like, wow, like a year later, that it would be just like this? Did you, did you think about that? You know, you always hope that it is, and you right. wish, but you, I mean, you never know what, what, like right. I said, you never know what, what's gonna happen. You just stay, try to stay true to yourself and. Uh -huh and to the art and, and, and do the best work that you possibly can, but you never know if the kids are gonna like it or not, so I'm really thankful that they did enjoy it.
All right, so onto Velvet Rope. There wasn't so much stuff to edit out of this section. I was only... I I did want to do a proper deconstruction of Got Till It's Gone, but I I just couldn't source the multi-tracks. I mean, well, I, I knew how to source them, but it, it, it just didn't work out. So I did what I could using the various versions we have available of, of the song, which I, which I think turned out okay. Uh, but this bit, uh, again, it's another editing of politics, I think. I don't know if Janet is really regarded as the gay icon she probably could be, particularly because of this segment. This this part is essentially about the uh, the gay aspects of the Velvet Rope album, and it feels kind of appropriate being that yesterday here in Australia, uh, our parliament finally passed legislation to legalise same-sex marriage. This was actually quite difficult to edit out, but... I think from memory, one of the reasons I did was because the interview parts that I used, they had music playing under them, and it was different music to what I was playing under them. And you'll probably be able to hear it. I just couldn't get them to a state where it was of quality for me. Otherwise, I I, I do wish I'd I'd left this in. I I think it's quite a sweet little piece, but I'll let you judge. The next single off uh, the Velvet Rope is going to be uh, Together Again, uh, which is a song that uh, I wrote uh, for my friends who have died of AIDS. And uh, I didn't want to do something that was, you know, very somber. Um, I wanted to do something that was more rejoiceful, reflecting uh, the energy of their personalities. There were a few people that thought I should not do it. That thought I should that I thought I should go in and at least redo the lyrics. They didn't want it to be about my friends passing away from AIDS. And I, I, I disagreed with that and just went with it. But I didn't back down from what I was feeling. Saw a more socially confident Janet during the previous era, the Velvet Rope brought about a more outspoken personality, acknowledging a significant demographic of her fan base. 
While gays have often created massive followings to female pop stars, in the late 90s, it still took a considerable risk to make a public statement on same-sex relationships. But she wrote about those attractions as if they were no different from what most at the time would have considered conventional or even moral. You're talking about Free Zone, right? Yes. Um, yes, it's very up-tipple. Um, it's, a, it's a dance song. And once again, it's, it's a, a, a place where you can go and be who you really are, be yourself, and not crown these different uh, these facades, uh, these different characters for different people. Right. Um, but, but be who you are. Mama, you're gay. That used to be my nickname. Okay. Uh, discrimination. Uh, the reason why I did it at this point is because I just got really fed up with it. I have friends that are gay, mm. and uh, just any type of discrimination right. is something that just really, really disturbs me. And you know, when you get to a certain point, whether it's racism or something, you say, "That's it. I'm not taking this right anymore." So I, I needed to write about it. all the albums that I've done, I always write about what's going on in my life, and this is a continuation of what's happened since the last album, what this album speaks about. It is the most adult album that I've done, but I'm finding more and more kids are starting to catch on and understand it and are really getting into it. Do you think your audience is growing with you, or do you, or do you think that uh, you're also picking up the younger audience as you go along? I think my audience, we definitely grow together. Um, I, I mean, you have to, really. I mean, you get older and, and the world changes around you and you make lots of changes in your life. And, and uh, like I said, I write about those changes. But also, like I said before, a lot of teenagers have actually come up to me and, and so they can totally relate to certain uh, subject matters on, on uh, this album. So yeah, I, I'd really like to perhaps in a, a later revision of the documentary to properly go into together again because it's only, you know it's only one of her biggest hits. One day maybe. Post Velvet Rope, what made it into the documentary was pretty much all I had. Certainly during the Unbreakable segment, there was nothing I edited out. Uh, I did have earlier plans to include Janet receiving. Uh, her award from that era, but I, I don't even think that made it to to work print stage. As far as the Demeter Joe to discipline section goes, that was a little bit longer, but I, I felt people kind of got the point. And I would just point out, I've I've read a lot of people. If there has been a significant criticism of of the documentary, it is that I didn't talk that much about Demeter Joe. But again, I would say that. It's about all three of them, and it is apparent that Janet wasn't as involved in Demeter Joe as she had been with previous albums. I, I think it's often been exaggerated just how lacking her involvement was in the project, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, Demeter Joe is great. It's almost as good as all for you for me. 
but I didn't have much time to left to go into that too deeply, and I didn't have really any material for for those three albums that would be interesting enough for for me to go into. All for you was kind of a similar case where I didn't have a lot. Very early on, I did plan to do a deconstruction of the song "You Ain't Right." One of the biggest challenges, though, was saying something different from, say, "Doesn't Really Matter" to "Son of a Gun" to "You Ain't Right." It was there. There just wasn't that much to differentiate the songs in terms of their production. But one of the things that I think that Jam and Lewis are exceptionally underrated, their use of samples. And we went into it a little bit while talking about the the song All For You, but this this little segment here is just to expand on that a little bit more, which is ultimately why it was cut. I sampled Ventura Highway by America, one of my favorite songs growing up. We did a song called Someone to Call My Lover with Janet. And I met uh, Dewey Brunel and, and the other gentleman in America, I can't remember his name. I met him on a plane. And he said, hey, man, you built me my swimming pool. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm glad. But you guys, I was raised on your music. So I'm so happy to be able to do it. And by the way, when I played the track for Janet, she had never heard it in her life. And that was great. So I introduced her to something that she really loved. So I, I, see, I love sampling. I love the technology. The thing is, don't let the t- technology use you but you use it to the way that it, it works for you. So yeah, there wasn't really a lot to say with that bit. I do feel that I didn't spend enough time on All For You, though, but it was just a case of what do I have and what can I make of it. So the the first announcement for the documentary was a video on YouTube, which is the actually I'll, I'll I'll just play it now to to refresh. We actually heard it a bit earlier, but this is the exact teaser that was that was posted. <laughs> I guess that's why God didn't give me a voice. Because that'd probably be too hard to handle. So for those who might have uh, not been aware, this caused a bit of controversy. It started with people not believing that it was Janet saying those things. And then someone tweeted it to one of her dancers, uh, I believe his name is Gil, who has been working with her since 1997. And he said that it wasn't Janet either. Now, I I mean, it's indisputable that it is Janet, as I I think I've I've proven my my credibility with this. But it did cause a bit of panic. It was a bit of a a, a PR (laughs) concern because I, I... and I, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I was getting some quite 
personal attacks. Not the nothing, nothing too, nothing hurtful or anything. But I, I mean, honestly, I got to a point where I found it amusing. But I did feel that I had to, <laughs> I, I had to conduct a bit of damage control. So I ended up posting this snippet, which I think was uh, just a couple of days later. And that is the scratch vocal from uh, Escapade, which uh, actually wasn't included in, in the documentary. I think I made a decision on that early on. Uh, but that's, I think that alleviated most people's concerns about the, the credibility of the project because that laugh at the end is anyone who's a Janet fan knows that's her. So some other teasers were posted. Um, I think I did one on If. Uh, it was actually a performance version. I, I have two multi-tracks. One is the album version of If, and one is the 1993 MTV performance version of the song, which is uh, it's slightly different. Ma- mainly there's a bit of percussion change. And then I, I posted... That, and then the date for the documentary was announced and where it was going to be broadcast. Uh, if my memory serves me correctly, it was the 17th of September on Sin Media. Well, actually, for the rest of the world, I suppose that was the 16th. So I, the, so it went to broadcast during Sin Media's graveyard shift, which is, uh, I think, 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. So... That was the sacrifice I made to broadcast the documentary at a time where it was convenient for those of you in America and some parts of Europe. So, And, and I, I, I did receive a, a criticism uh, from someone saying that I'd put my own country in second place because I, I aired it in such a, a ridiculous time slot for those of us in Australia. So the documentary goes to air, and I'm uh, as it's actually being aired. I'm in. I'm sitting in the studio, and I'm reading. That's posted about it on Twitter and and some of the Janet forums, and it was uh, it, it was genuinely nice. I'm 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 so glad that people uh, enjoyed it, and I'm very grateful that actually people tuned in to listen to it go to air live. So the broadcast finishes, and I post a, a thank you on on my Facebook page. And I I wrote that those who may have recorded it, please don't don't post it online because I'll I'll get around to it. So I, I walk home from the studio, I go to bed for about three hours, wake up, and sure enough, someone had posted it on SoundCloud, and it was already at I think uh, eight hundred listens or something like that. So I got my shit together and. And posted it on YouTube. That got to a couple of hundred views before it was taken down. And and then it was uh, posted on Mixcloud, where it now lives, and as will all of my future productions. And to date, I think, between the uh, uploads, which I haven't been engaged in, and, of course, the, the main one on my Mixcloud, 
I think it's gotten around about 10,000 overall listens, which is quite humbling. And Jimmy Jam uh, retweeted my link and started following me. And the neo-soul singer Maxwell, whom I'm a massive, massive fan of, just out of the blue tweeted about it, uh, I think I think three times on the one day. It was quite quite interesting. A friend of mine texted me and said, are you paying Maxwell to tweet about this? This is kind of ridiculous. And given that he has, I think, about 5 million likes across Facebook and uh, Twitter, it, it was quite ridiculous. And and by the time I thought the fanfare around it was kind of dying down, I was I was at a Parliament Funkadelic concert and I got a, a Facebook message from a friend of mine saying Questlove has just tweeted your documentary, which is such a great honour because he is the music nerd for us music nerds. So that was uh, quite overwhelming as well. And like I said earlier, it's it's nice to have those people to to uh, tweet about your work, especially given that these are people I greatly admire. But all of you guys who supported it, uh, you're just as important to the success of the documentary. So I I thank you all very much for those who did post on social media, for the journalists who wrote articles, and those who reviewed it on podcasts. It's absolutely... um, There you go. No words. So I'm going to continue with projects along these lines. Next year, I will be doing a series called John Cameron's Musicology, where I will be focusing on a particular artist during a particular period of their career. Uh, Janet will be featured in an episode. I'm not entirely sure when that will be, but the current intention is to focus on the Janet era and the Velvet Rope era, so about 1992 to 1998. And, yeah, some of the material that didn't make it into this documentary will make it into that. That's why I've been a bit hesitant about posting the entire work print. So so I hope what we've run through today has uh, satiated uh, a lot of your uh, <laughs> lust to hear that material. Um, so... I want to leave you today with a remix I did back in, I think, 2015. This is the Runaway Floating on Air remix that I made, and I posted it on SoundCloud. I think it's also gotten somewhere in the neighbourhood of 10,000 listens. But, um, yeah, I I just can't emphasise how thankful I am to all of you for your support, and I hope this little extra program um, you've enjoyed just as much as the original so thank you very much
Oh. 